to the Caspian Podcast, the podcast with the Caspian Post, with me, Mark Elliott. Hello and welcome to the Caspian Podcast with me, Mark Elliott. Today we're talking to Matthew Breiser. Matthew's CV is so long, I don't even know where to start. Um, but um, what particularly interests us is the fact that he was ambassador in Azerbaijan um, around a decade ago. But he also looked at the pipeline politics before that. He worked at uh, all kinds of things. He was in, in Moscow and, and in Poland looking at solidarity right at the beginning of your career. That sounds fascinating. I wish we had time for that. Now uh, he's... Um, yeah, I'll get this right. A senior fellow at the Eurasian Centre of the Atlantic Council, and also working in environmental and oil and energy businesses. That's goodness knows. <laughs> Have I got some of that right, Matthew? You got it all right, Mark. It's great. Thank you. Thanks for having me with you. Oh, so nice to see you. And and the Atlantic Council. You're telling me that's got people like Kissinger and Albright and, and great names involved. Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess Dr. Kissinger no longer, but he was and, you know, former national security advisor Steve Hadley and uh, all kinds of, you know, former senators and ministers of whatever in the foreign and foreign affairs sector in Washington. Yeah, it's a big organization, several hundred experts, analysts covering the whole world. And it's a great thing that, that people with the great expertise that, that you guys have actually are able to feed that into the public in some way. I, I would imagine that's something. Now, I, but I have to ask you. I were an ambassador. And for, for me, that's a very exciting, thrilling thing. And I think I would be right to say that a lot of people have no idea what it's actually like being an ambassador. I mean, is it fun? Yes, yeah, the most fun job I ever had. Uh, it ended up being one of the easiest ones because I had such an amazing staff. Uh, but it's it's complicated. I mean, you know, the conventional wisdom is ambassadors are just flitting around town, going to cocktail parties and eating little sandwiches with the crust cut off. But uh, <laughs> in my case, it's it was really intense. Um, there are several aspects to it. Um, one is uh, you're the mayor of a small town, essentially. You know, in our case, uh, Embassy Baku, we had a total of about uh, 380, 390 employees. Um, Only around 80, 85 were Americans, so the rest were local. But yeah, everything that happens in a small town practically happens in a community right. like that. Uh, and you, know, you really have to worry about morale and almost be, be a politician internally. Um, then there's the job of uh, explaining the, mm -hmm. the country you're based in to Washington uh, to try to shape uh, Washington's policy in a way that the ambassador and the ambassador's team thinks makes the most sense for U.S. national interests. And that's got to be quite hard yeah, in, in an area of the world where, frankly, a lot of people, it's a bit of a blank on people's map, isn't it, the Caspian region? Oh, it is. It is. I remember when I was a little kid, I thought, wait, what is that weird squiggly blue thing out there between the Black Sea and those <laughs> mountains? Yeah, it's, it's obscure for many people in Washington. But, the, the, you know, the, the, I think what we really get paid for as diplomats is to persuade other countries and build cooperation with them and achieve hopefully common objectives between the United States and that host country. And that, that requires media appearances. It requires one-on-one -on -one meetings with senior leaders. It requires engagement uh, with non-governmental organizations as well. But I think one of the things we've tended to hear about sometimes that American ambassadors come in without much experience. You, uh, quite on the other on the other hand, were so almost overqualified for this, from what I can tell. Um, so talk us through the, the jobs you did before. As I understand it, you had been working on the uh, some of the nitty gritty of the negotiations with uh, uh, to, to do with the Minsk Group and and other um, 
work it, I, I think I need to explain to people watching this that they may not be aware that after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the Caucasus had many unsolved disputes. Um, so which of those were you actually involved in, or was it all of them? Yeah, and so I, I was involved, by the way, both uh, in the White House, where I worked for four years for President Bush, focusing on the South Caucasus, Central Asia, Turkey, Greece, Cyprus. Then another four years back at the State Department, where essentially my job was to implement <laughs> the mm -hmm. ideas that came out of the processes, the bureaucratic processes I was chairing while at the White House. So I ended up being the mediator um, for the U.S. of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, of the South Ossetia and Abkhazia conflicts in Georgia, and also de facto, although I didn't have the title, but I performed the role uh, of the U.S. mediator with regard to the Cyprus question. So, and those were all going on simultaneously. While I also have day-to-day -day responsibility for our bilateral relationship with with those countries that I listed, so it, it was busy, but it was uh, so fascinating. And I, you know, I really felt like I could make a difference and and, and connecting with with people in other countries, especially in disputes, when you can help mm -hmm. them maybe inch toward resolution of those disputes. That's very satisfying. So, when when the uh, Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia uh, issue suddenly got very brutally ended, as it were, in, in 2008. Was, was that a bit of a blow for you, for a lot of the work you'd done? Um, it, I was expecting it, but it was, it was, uh, I was so deep into it that I just, I was just working like crazy. And sec then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice sent me to Georgia on her behalf after I spent the first three or four days never sleeping is constantly coordinating the process back in Washington. So she sent me there. Uh, I landed at the moment that the Russian troops had broken through the Georgian defensive line. But before I left, I said, Madam Secretary, uh, what, ex what exactly do you want me to do? She said, I don't know. Do something. Calm the Georgian <laughs> people and prepare the government for a discussion for when I arrive in a couple of days, because we hope to have a ceasefire agreement in hand by then, and we're going to have to negotiate it. So um, I was... In one sense, I knew the Russians were spoiling for a fight. Um, I had been desperately trying to wake up not only Washington, but Berlin, Paris, and London, because mm. our negotiating team consisted of, of ambassadors from all those countries. And so I would never want there to be an armed conflict. <laughs> there was a certain part of me that was relieved because now everyone could see I wasn't crazy. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the Russians were provoking this and it happened. Well, that's interesting. I, I remember I was living in Belgium at the time and in Brussels, groups of us as Caucasus watchers, after Kosovo was recognised by the EU, went into a mad flap thinking, well, absolutely, certainly it would seem to us that Russia would retaliate in kind. Um, now, that's probably a very simplistic idea, but do you, is there any credence to that? I mean... It's not simplistic at all. I mean, that was exactly what my senior leadership at the State Department White House recognized. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up uh, getting tagged to be the chair of an effort to figure out how we could recognize Kosovo and deter Russia from invading Georgia. And my conclusion after a couple of months was it's impossible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I hate to say that, one, one of, I, that was one of our fears as well. We discussed this at great length amongst um, sort of academics and friends, we, we really feared that that was likely the case. Now, and I, I listened to your um, Al Jazeera interview back in November, and I loved the, the, the way you, you put it that somehow the Russian peacekeepers can someone, sometimes have nefarious actions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that does seem to have been a bit the case, certainly in, in Ossetia. Um, mm -hmm. 
Now, uh, yeah. sorry, carry on. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, you know, I was getting the live information fed into me by all the sources you can imagine, uh, including people on the ground. And what happened was, um, it was the it was the Russian troops um, positioned themselves, the peacekeepers, the Russian peacekeepers between the Georgian military and South Ossetian peacekeep uh, South Ossetian militia, and so the South Ossetians were firing artillery over the heads of the Russian peacekeepers. And so the Russian peacekeepers were providing a human shield for the South Ossetians so the Georgians couldn't shoot back until the fighting, the shooting got so intense that the, the Georgians did respond with heavy artillery. So the, the Russian peacekeepers, they, they created peace, pieces, pieces of Georgia, but not peace. Right. Now, let's get on to something a little, perhaps a little more positive. Now, we're, we're fast forwarding a little bit, uh, 2020 obviously has been a, a dramatic year um, for the resolution, or at least temporary resolution, it would seem, of the Karabakh issue. But you've been dealing with this again uh, for absolutely years. Um, and uh, again, for people that aren't very familiar with it, for, for most of the time that the was so, there was so, a so-called frozen conflict, there was in fact a group, the, the Minsk group, uh, from the OSCE were, were supposedly working on finding a solution. Now, looking at things now, it seems like what's happened is that the Minsk group just simply didn't achieve anything because what's happened now is the status quo has returned to how it was legally before in the first place. Um, do you think the Minsk group did any good? And and can you give us some inside insights uh, to what was going on in those years of discussion? Sure, I, I, I think the Minsk group did a tremendous amount of good, e even if you know, it's not recognized. So what the Minsk group did was negotiate with the presidents and foreign ministers of Armenia and Azerbaijan, a framework for a peace treaty, for, for a settlement, a final settlement of the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, and, and that was written and then put on the table by, well, by the three Minsk group co-chairs, which was my Russian counterpart, uh, his name was Yuri Merzlakov, my French counterpart, Bernard Fassier, and myself, God rest Bernard's soul. Um, and that was a product of, yes, years of up and back negotiations where, you know, one concession would be, if you will, bought by the other side with another concession. And so we came up with a framework that was so uh, mutually agreed that on, in January of 2019, I'll never forget, at the Radisson Blue Hotel in, uh, at Zurich Airport, <laughs> The presidents then of Armenia, Sarad Sarkisian and Ilham Aliyev on their way to Davos stopped, had a meeting with us and agreed in principle unofficially to the framework we had outlined. Uh, it was, those are called the Madrid principles or the basic principles. And in the end, um, the settlement now at the end of this war uh, is essentially those basic principles with one big exception. The basic principles, the fundamental bargain of them was that um, Azerbaijan regains all of its territories that had been occupied by Armenians illegally. Uh, and Armenia gets in, in return peace. They get security guarantees for the Armenian populations that will stay back in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, uh, and they also would get the possibility of a change in the legal status of Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, internationally, every country on earth recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan, even mm -hmm. Armenia to this day. But our formula, would have allowed for, at least theoretically, a change in the legal status of Nagorno-Karabakh to something other than part of Azerbaijan. Could have been independent, could have been part of Armenia. So because that was offered throughout the war to the Armenian side, Prime Minister Pashinyan rejected 
that offer. Um, so in the end, when Armenia lost the war, they essentially got those Madrid principles, but without that most important element mm. for Armenia, which is the possibility of a, a new legal status for Nagorno-Karabakh itself. So uh, on that interview, you sounded fairly upbeat that the situation would be stable and would, despite the possible nefarious actions, perhaps of Russian uh, peacekeepers. Um, in the time since that interview, has your opinion changed or are you still fairly confident that things are working in a positive direction? I'm quite confident. I mean, there were some incidents where some Armenian uh, operatives infiltrated back into Azerbaijani territory near Nagorno-Karabakh. There was some fighting, uh, but the Russian peacekeepers responded firmly and they've been doing a good job. I have to say, I, yeah, I talked about nefariousness elsewhere, but you know, a heavy, a, a powerful peacekeeping force immediately deployable was essential on November 10th when President Zaliev and President Putin signed their, their statement that, that, that the Prime Minister of Armenia, Pashinyan, had signed the day before. No other country was ready to go. No other country could have provided that, that size of a peacekeeping force. And without it, the fighting would have continued, who knows how long. So the real question is two, twofold. One. Turkey also has a peacekeeping presence, uh, and that means NATO has a peacekeeping presence in Azerbaijan. How much of a counterbalance will that provide to the Russian peacekeeping force? And number two, when the five-year term of the Russian peacekeeping force expires, will they leave? <laughs> or will that peacekeeping force maybe be expanded and become multilateral? And I think that's something the Minsk Group should really focus on. So you, you see there's still legs in the Minsk Group yet? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, there's a big controversy over what the Minsk Group should do. So Armenia and France, and France is a co-chair, would like the Minsk Group to resurrect this question of whether Nagorno-Karabakh's legal status could change. Azerbaijan and Russia have been saying, no, the agreement is the agreement or the statement of November 9 and 10. Um, so the status issue is not alive for now. It's, it's not to be negotiated. Uh, so therefore, the Minsk group, though, still has many other things to do to, to make sure the ceasefire holds and step by step that the two countries, Azerbaijan and Armenia, begin to restore some sense. It's naive to say trust, but at least of, of tolerance and an ability to work together. And by the way, Azerbaijan is very eager to work together with Armenia and, and, and reopen Armenia's uh, transportation links, not only with Azerbaijan, but with Turkey as well. Mm. Uh, is that just the corridor that we see reaching through the southern strip to, to Nakhchivan, or, or are we talking about a full opening of the borders and a, a full restoration of all economic links, is, I mean, which would seem is essential, really? Yeah, so, so that's precision is absent. Um, if you go back and look at the, the final point in the November 9 and 10 statement, which essentially is a preliminary peace agreement, um, what it says is simply that all transportation linkages in the region are reopened, are reopened, all linkages. So it's wide open and this vessel of opportunity needs to be filled now with, with, with concrete projects. And there's a, there's a committee that was set up on, on January 11th uh, among Russia, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia uh, to develop specific infrastructure projects that all three countries must agree on. Uh, and they're beginning with transportation projects. So that, that, that's the first round. Well, I suppose this brings me to my, my last real question, which is uh, uh, very recently I was talking to uh, Gela Bejuashvili, who you oh. may remember as, as the Georgian Minister of Foreign Affairs back in about 2005, something like that, uh, 2005 to 2008. He 
it tells me, and you may have been party to this, that um, perhaps um, far-fetched but wonderful idea that they had had back then, that he thinks might work now much better, is the idea of creating a sort of Caucasian customs union, something along the lines of Benelux. Um, and I just was interested, you know, with your slightly uh, different perspective from all many different angles, whether you think that could work, and, and if so, how could it work? Well, yeah, Gala is a very close friend of mine. I mean, Minister <laughs> and my family, we, we, we have know each other and, uh, yeah, invited him to my wedding. I mean, I really, I, I really respect him. Um, yeah, that idea is, it's, it's, it would be a fantastic point to reach. Um, but it's, it's, you know, right now with the wounds of war still so painful in Armenia and with Armenia going through a political crisis and, you know, you've got one, one half of the political elite saying our myth of invincibility. Uh, and our myth that the Americans and Russians would come to our rescue and that we're better fighters than the Azerbaijanis who don't know how to fight, that's gone. And so some wise people, uh, Armenians and Armenian Americans are saying, we need to move on. We need to relinquish our claims on territory in uh, Turkey, in Azerbaijan, uh, even in Iran, uh, and build a new Armenia. But that is a bitter pill for many in the political elite to swallow. And they want to they're pointing fingers, blaming each other and, you know, angling maybe for the, the old communist era uh, holdovers <laughs> to come back to power. Um, so in that situation, it's, it's, it's really difficult for any Armenian politician to gain traction and say, we need to cooperate with Azerbaijan in that way. But that needs to happen. And I think these transportation infrastructure projects, uh, as well as maybe industrial investment projects, maybe a petrochemical zone that's on the territory of Turkey, Armenia and Azerbaijan at the same time. I think that's, that's, that's how we're going to start bringing the countries together. And then after that, once there's more economic cooperation, then sure, then a customs union could be possible. But, you know, I ran a think tank in Estonia for three years. And we think of the three Baltic states as being friendly with each other. They're all in the EU. They're all in NATO. Uh, and and they, they can't a customs union, they don't need one because they're, they're in the EU, but they can't come up with a common way uh, to, to develop weapons and military procurement. And they are very close together. So a customs union now that involves Armenia and Azerbaijan, is, is, it's a bridge too far today, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's a, the right goal on the horizon. Well, let's hope that that may be the case in, in the distant future, at least, and, and, and at least that, that what we've seen over the last few months uh, will be, be building towards lasting peace. Matthew Breiser, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you've been listening to the Caspian podcast with me, Mark Elliott. It's the podcast of the Caspian Post. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.